The Human Podcast features weekly service audio from the Unitarian Universalist Metro Atlanta North Congregation of Roswell, Georgia. Please visit us at human.org. Good morning. My name is Mandy Winders, and I'm a member of this congregation. And on behalf of our guest speaker, Reverend Kim Palmer, our music director, Alex Peach, my fellow worship associates, and our technical team who's making today's live broadcast possible, I'd like to welcome you to the Unitarian Universalist Metro Atlanta North congregation, which we lovingly call human. We are a liberal faith community with the mission to nurture our spirit, strive for justice, and transform the world. No matter who you are, who you love, or where you are on your spiritual journey, all are welcome here. All right, uh, we have one announcement this morning. Um, In the month of June, we will continue to have exciting guest speakers. Next week, uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting talent Orlando Montoya, who is also a leading national authority on the poet Conrad Aiken, will be speaking about him. The following week, we'll be joined by Gail Bohannon and Catherine Phillips, who will be talking about the history of Groveway, Roswell's historical black community, and the organization by the same name that was created to meet the needs of that community. And now we'll light the chalice. Blessed is the fire that burns deep in the soul. It is the flame of the human spirit, touched into being by the mystery of life. It is the fire of reason, the fire of compassion, the fire of community, the fire of justice, the fire of faith. It is the fire of love burning deep in the human heart, the divine glow in every life. going to do a reading, a poem called Please Call Me by My True Names by Thich Nhat Hanh. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving. To be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I'm a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I'm the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I'm the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I'm also the pirate 
my heart yet not capable of seeing and loving. I'm a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like a spring, so warm, it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. When I was a kid, there was a small sewage treatment plant down the street from where I grew up. When I became a teenager and had a lot of angst and was looking to self-soothe, I would ride my bicycle down to the plant, climb over the eight-foot fence, and just watch the aerator churn. One day when I was down there, the treatment plant operator drove up. I knew that I could climb over the fence and run into the woods and he would never catch me. But I figured that if I did that, he would worry that I had done something, you know, some kind of vandalism, and he would spend time looking for damage. So I just stood up and waited for him to arrive. He saw me inside, and he looked puzzled as he opened the gate. He walked up to me, still puzzled. Are you with the EPA? <laughs> no, I said. <clears throat> I'm just in high school. I was like in ninth grade. How did you get in? I climbed over the fence, I said. I explained that I came to the plant sometimes just to watch the aerator, and I didn't want to just run away because I didn't want him to worry that I'd done something to the plant. He pondered that for a moment. Would you like a tour, he asked. He showed me the settling tanks, the big pumps and motors that ran the aerator, the sand filter beds, and the chlorination station. He explained what he was doing as he checked the chlorine levels and collected the strip charts that recorded flow. Then he told me he was done and he was going to leave. There was an awkward pause, and then he said, um, I have to lock the gate. Are you gonna come out with me or are you gonna go back over the fence? <laughs> oh, oh, I said, I'll I'll come out with you. When we were outside the enclosure and the gate was locked, I turned to him again and I said, if you tell me never to come back here, I'll never come back. He looked at me thoughtfully and then he said, I can't see as how you're doing any harm. Like many adolescents, I had a strong sense of moral absolutism. Obviously, I didn't have a problem with trespassing. <laughs> but I never got into mischief when I did because I didn't steal or bother or damage other people's stuff. I held, very, uh, I held very strongly to what I thought was right and wrong. And I saw myself as a person of integrity and moral responsibility. Um, this meant that I was willing to get caught. I was willing to get in trouble. I was willing to be banned from the sewage treatment plant. I knew who I wanted to be and how I wanted to behave, and I was willing to adhere to it and face the consequences. Now, here I am, these many decades later. Who am I now? 
Do I still uphold my values with integrity? Am I kind, loving, centered, compassionate? It's easy to be those things with my friends, but what about with others? One unfortunate thing about the news, and I'm sure you've heard this phrase, is if it bleeds, it leads. We get, I think, a distorted view of risk and threat and crime. Of course, we still need to keep ourselves safe, pay attention to those things that give us misgivings, and not put ourselves in unnecessary danger. But I don't want to be that person who hunkers down in my bunker, ready to see an evildoer bent on mayhem with any unexpected knock on the door. One summer, probably 20 years ago, my spouse Marty and I uh, went out to run some errands. And as we left, we noticed a pickup truck on the side street with its hood up and a trailer full of yard equipment and a couple of men in the cab. When we got back three hours later, the truck was still there, the hood still up. Now, I know that they had been there at least three hours, and I know that if I'd sat there that long, I would have to pee. <laughs> so I went up to them. It was two Hispanic men. <clears throat> they didn't speak much English, but they spoke enough. I asked if they needed to use the bathroom, and they both nodded vigorously. I led them back to the house and directed them to the facilities. And after they had cycled through, I asked if they were hungry. They looked at each other and then nodded again. I fixed them a hearty lunch and we sat down to eat. It turns out their truck had broken down and a third man on their crew had taken the part off to get repaired and that as soon as he came back, they would be able to fix their truck and go. They seemed grateful for the food and drink and after eating, they left to resume their weight in their vehicle. When I told my mother about this incident, she was appalled. <laughs> you let strange men into the house? They could have robbed you or killed you. And yes, I suppose they could have. Um, but it seems unlikely that they would wait sitting in the truck in the heat of the summer for half the day, just waiting for an unsuspecting victim to invite them in. <laughs> it seemed much more likely that they were exactly what they appeared, a couple of hungry and thirsty men sitting in their broken down work vehicle in a strange neighborhood, waiting for their friend to get back before their bladders burst. Do I want to be so fearful of everyone that I can't extend a helping hand to a neighbor in need? No, I do not. I would rather be kind. At Emory, we provide our chaplain residents with cognitively-based compassion training, a contemplative practice designed to cultivate compassion for the self and for others. One of the meditation exercises is to call three, pe three people to mind in sequence, someone close to you, someone neutral, like a bus driver or maybe a workman in a broken-down truck, and someone you find difficult, and to recognize in each of them the common human trait of people just wanting to find happiness and avoid suffering. We practice regarding each of them with warm-heartedness. The idea is to broaden our sense of compassion beyond our immediate circles to encompass ever wider groups, even our enemies. 
extending compassion to others. Is that who we might want to be? In 1968, a Russian sub sank in international waters with all hands lost. The US mounted a salvage operation in 1974 in an attempt to retrieve the sub and get a look at Soviet technology. Because this was during the Cold War, the mission was secret and carried out under a cover story of undersea mining. During retrieval, the sub broke apart and only about a third of it made it to the surface. They found six bodies in that section. Of course, the US couldn't just return the remains to Russia and admit that we were filching their sub. So the six sailors were given a burial at sea with full military honors, and the ceremony was filmed in the hopes that one day it could be shared with the Russians. And in fact, it was. The film was given to Boris Yeltsin in the early 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War and the parents were finally able to see their sons buried. This is who I want us to be as a nation. We may have been at war, the Russians may have been the enemy, but those boys still deserved a decent burial and to be buried with respect, and we did that. But we're not always so upstanding. In 2013, two self-radicalized brothers of Chechen Kyrgyzstani descent committed an act of domestic terrorism when they set off a couple of pressure cooker bombs near the crowded finish line of the Boston Marathon. Several people were killed, 260 were injured, including 17 who lost limbs. One of the brothers, Tamerlan Sarnayev, was killed during the chase, and the other, Johar, was caught and sentenced to death. Tamerlan's body was held in a funeral home outside of Boston for over three weeks because no cemetery would agree to take his body. I remember at the time thinking that this kid should still be buried despite the horrible thing that he did. I thought it was shameful that no one would take him to bury him. Ultimately, it was a compassionate Christian woman who was following Jesus' admonition to uh, love our enemies who worked to find a Muslim cemetery in Virginia where he was finally laid to rest. Of course, we were angry at this guy, angry at all the suffering he had caused. But what should we have done with his body? Throw it in the ocean as chum? Drag it through the city, chained to a truck? Sometimes it feels easy for us to nod and say, that sounds about right, but he's still a human being. Does anybody remember the images from almost 30 years ago when the naked body of an American service member was dragged to the streets of Mogadishu by supporters of Somali warlord Mohammed Adid? I can see some nods. It's called desecration of a corpse for a reason. Desecration. It describes the treatment of something sacred with violent disrespect. Regardless of whether this is your brother or an enemy, a Mother Teresa or a Hitler, this is still a human being. Again, I ask, who do we want to be? Do we want to be the person who kicks and spits on a broken body being dragged to the cheering mob? Or do we want to be the person who retains their own humanity by recognizing the humanity of the other? 
So how do we apply these concepts to our personal lives? For me, I struggle with the current political divisions, which feel particularly immediate as the hearings on the January 6th insurrection unfold. For example, consider my view of Trump. I think he's a bully and a user. I don't think he respects people or institutions or the law. I found many of the actions and policies during his presidency abhorrent. Now what? Do I want to be a person who is kind, loving, compassionate, even to my enemies? Some of you may be familiar with the story of the orphans from Romania adopted by US families from absolutely appalling conditions that came to light in the early 1990s. Children were abandoned by their parents and deemed unsalvageable by the state and received, at best, minimal care with little food and unsanitary conditions and no affection. Many of the children adopted from these orphanages were irreparably damaged and despite therapy and caring adoptive parents, grew up with attachment disorder and antisocial behaviors. Several have written about their experiences and struggles. Some have found a measure of success in learning what behaviors are expected and mimicking them to stay out of trouble and out of jail, but they remain completely unable to feel empathy or to make an emotional attachment with any other person. These people are damaged, yes. They may even be cruel and spread pain wherever they go, breaking the hearts of all who would try to love them. But we can have compassion for them and their emotionally stunted lives, the psychological damage acquired through no fault of their own. I try to remember these orphans when I think about Trump. What do we make of his steady stream of lies, the wreckage he's caused through his actions, his lifestyle of grift, his delight in cruelty? What damage was inflicted on him to make him this way? Now, this doesn't give him a pass. There still needs to be accountability. But perhaps he is also a victim. Imagine how small and soulless his life is, a product of his environment or perhaps a disordered mind, with his transactional approach to everything and everyone, and his inability to have a true connection with any other person. I feel sorry for him. On my better days, I might even be able to reach for compassion. But sometimes it's hard. It seems that the world is conspiring to keep us from our better selves. It does feel like we're under attack and have enemies all around. We're in the midst of a highly polarized nation, surrounded by leaders steeped in corruption, attacks on our democracy and fundamental rights, and poor behavior at every level, from the increasing rudeness of drivers on the roadways to the vitriol spewed by politicians who demonize immigrants transgender people, Black Lives Matter, and even democracy itself. I struggle against the hardening of my own heart. I find myself wishing not just that people will be brought to justice, but that they will suffer. When someone falls out of favor with Trump or his, and, uh, or, or his base for not being extreme enough and the right-wing machine turns on them, I feel happy that they are getting a taste of their own medicine. 
when someone who has been a vocal influencer on social media in opposition to masks and vaccines gets COVID and dies, I feel like it serves them right. I am sometimes full of rage and lust for vengeance. I don't just want my enemies disempowered and stopped, I want them crushed. But am I no better than a deeds mob in Mogadishu, spitting and kicking and dancing as the corpse goes by? I want to be better than that. I want to be. I do not want to be a person who delights in another's death, who takes joy in another's suffering. How then do I return to who I want to be? Here's what I think we can do. When we feel that clenching of the jaw, that hardness in the heart, we can notice it. Take a deep breath. Reflect on our common humanity and how there's nothing new under the sun. Thich Nhat's poem about the girl who drowned herself in the sea um, applies here, I think. I'm going to reprise just a couple of stanzas. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. In an interview about the poem, Tick speculated whether he might have become the pirate if he had grown up as the pirate grew up, if he had lived the pirate's life. I try to remember that we all carried the baggage of our circumstances, and we are all capable of both kindness and cruelty. I also think about the strategic and sustained program of disinformation that has been directed at Trump's base and the evangelical right. I think about how I didn't know about science and epidemiology and human sexuality and white supremacy until I was taught. Misinformed people may be dangerous, but not necessarily acting with malice. I want to stop them, outvote them, reinstate the fairness doctrine to educate them, but I don't want to be the person who wishes them death or dances on their graves. I try to remember the things I find offensive and disrespectful that my enemies do and not do those same things when I'm on the other side of an issue. Oh, and a big one. I try to moderate what I consume on social media. I've noticed over the past year or so that my Facebook feed is full of things like fail army videos, which show people slipping on ice or riding bicycles into poles or falling off scaffolding on construction sites. I also find many videos of car accidents and instant karma um, and stories of petty revenge or getting even with bad bosses or bad neighbors. I think this is also intentional and strategic and that we're being fed this steady diet of stuff to serve an agenda. These kinds of stories prime us for self-righteous anger, for celebrating when someone we disapprove of is hurt or put down or served a cold dish of revenge. They stoke the divisions between us, pander to our baser instincts, and desensitize us to other people's suffering. 
Don't watch that crap. Don't let it excite you and feed your lust for getting even. Don't be the person who cheers and dances as the corpse goes by. It's up to us to monitor our own hearts, to turn from thoughts of revenge to thoughts of justice, from hatred to compassion, from rage to reflection. It's up to us to work on being who we want to be, especially in light of the forces in the world that want to drag us down. And one other thing I try to keep in mind. I am not perfect, and I know it. When I find myself debasing another, cheering for the put-down, rejoicing in the suffering, I try to show compassion to myself. Compassion is a practice. When I slip away from it, I simply turn back, sometimes again and again, because I know who I want to be. May it be so for all of us, especially now. Now it's time to extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we meet again. I'll leave you with this benediction. As you go forth today, remember that you are a wonderful people. You are love and light. Go out as your true selves and share your gifts with the world. Amen. The Unitarian Universalist Metro Atlanta North Congregation of Roswell, Georgia, thanks you for listening to The Human Podcast. Background music, courtesy of Tim Moore from Pixabay.